Good to have you here with us this morning. Thank you for joining us for our time of worship today. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a pretty big storm that came through, and we had a tree that came down. Unfortunately, we were actually out, out of town. We were away on vacation when this occurred, and my son was home by himself, and so he came home and sent us this picture of half of a tree in the yard. And so um, he got some help from some neighbors, cleared it out of the driveway so he could at least get the car up in the driveway. And by the time we got home on Saturday, he had arranged for a truck, he had arranged for a chainsaw, he arranged for a buddy to come over, and they were actually taking care of cleaning up all of this, two-thirds of this tree that had come down in our yard. And so as they cleaned up the tree, I went out and just kind of helped out a little bit, threw a few branches on the truck a couple times, and he was in charge, got it all done, uh, got that all cleaned up, and uh, did a great job with it. And so I said, well, let's, because after two-thirds of the tree was taken out, there was a third of the tree leaning like this in the street, so there wasn't much left of that tree. So I was like, all right, next weekend we'll take the rest of the tree out. So the next weekend I arranged the truck, I arranged the saw, and I scheduled a time with him, and I was going to be in charge that week, and that didn't work so well. And um, so after we kind of navigated that journey that did not work so well, and I sat with it, we got the tree done, but it, uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience, let's just say that. And uh, so we got it all done, and we had this conversation afterwards, and I said to him, I said, I said, Daniel, I think from now on, when we're trying to figure out a way to work on a project together, you're going to be the one in charge, not me. And he's like, oh, okay, you know, I like that, you know. Um, and I said, because what happens is when you're in charge and something doesn't work out, you readily ask me for some help and assistance. But if I'm in charge and I tell you what to do, that doesn't go so well. And he agreed with me that that's the case. Um, because when you have an 18-year-old son and a father, they have very strong opinions about how things should be done and uh, it can be a challenge at times. But we had to find a way when things weren't working out to figure out who was going to be in charge. Who is going to be in charge? And um, it happens a lot like that in life. When things don't work out, we find ourselves in this place where I have to figure out who's going to be in charge of the situation. And often we find ourselves, people kind of drift towards one of two groups of people. There's some groups of people that they like being in charge, you know. They'll jump up and they'll be the first one to take charge. I'm kind of like that. If there's a problem that needs to be solved, I'll take charge and make it happen. And if no one's doing it, I want to make sure it gets done. Others of you... Um, might be so a little bit uncertain, and you'll wait for someone else, and you'll kind of step back and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and it might never actually get solved, but you'll wait for someone else to take charge and make that happen. As I was thinking about this, I thought, how does God do that with us? What does God do? We have a problem that we can't figure out, a problem that we can't solve. What does God do? And I realized God doesn't always solve our problems for us. He kind of lets us figure out which way we're going to go. Um, sometimes he'll ask us to take us the biggest step of faith, but too often once we do that, we take this big step of faith and then our confidence is in ourselves that I can figure this out myself, I can solve this problem myself, and we stop relying on him and we stop leaning on him to help us navigate those things. But the truth is God will remarkably will wait for us and let us decide who are we going to turn to to solve that problem? Who are we going to turn to to solve that problem. Because when life does not work out, we have a choice to make. Who takes over? God or me? When life does not work out, we have a choice to make. Okay, that's not, there we go. That's where we're supposed to be. When life does not work out, who takes over? God or me? And this morning, we're going to wrap up our series in the book of Judges. We're not at the end of the book, but this is the end of our series that we're going to be in. And uh, we'll be coming back to that next year and continue to explore the men that God raised up to help Israel never forget. 
But we, this, the book of Judges is a collection of stories. Um, and these are stories about individuals um, in the, the land of Israel. God had brought the Jewish people into the land of Israel, and they had obtained what's called the promised land. And they didn't have to work real hard to do it, because God said, I'll fight for you. And so God fought the enemies, defeated them, and they were able to establish a foothold in the land of Israel. But once they had a foothold, God then divided the land up, and he said to each one of the 12 tribes, the 12 groupings, he said, here's your portion, here's your portion, here's your portion. And they were responsible to move out the foreign enemies, the, uh, the foreign armies out of those areas. Because God said, if you don't move them out, you're going to start to inculcate them into your way of life. You'll start to do some of the things they do. And you'll start to think some of the things they think. And then you'll start to believe some of the things that they believe. And sure enough, God was pretty accurate because that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel did not drive out the foreign nations. And they began to adopt their way of life and their beliefs and ultimately their practices of faith. And so the book of Judges is about this series of individuals, these individuals who God raised up to bring about some form of justice in the land of Israel when injustice was happening. And they are known as the Judges. They served for a period of time in a specific area, and when they were done, um, the land went back to worshiping other gods, and God brought a new judge in. If you weren't here with us the last two weeks, we've been looking at the story of a guy by the name of Gideon. Some of the stories are shorter, we just get a little glimpse of them, and some are longer. Gideon, we get a long story about him. So we've actually been looking at his story the past two weeks. A couple of weeks ago we met Gideon, he was a guy that was just trying to hide from the enemy, because the enemy would come, steal their food, steal their livestock, and so he was just trying to hide it, so they have enough food to eat. Um, we know in the story that his tribe that he was from, the group of people, was one of the smaller tribes. We know that he was the youngest of his family. And so he didn't feel like he had a lot to offer. Didn't feel like there was a lot he could do. Didn't feel like there was much he could accomplish in his life. And God said, no, I have plans for you. He's like, me? You sure, me? And he put God through this series of tests to try to confirm that God was really going to use him. Well, God said, it's time to go. And there was an occupying force known as the Midianites. They had a massive army, 100, nearly 140,000 men. And Gideon had 30,000, 32,000 to be exact. And God said, that's too many. That's too many. We think, wait a minute, that's not too many. They don't have enough. They need more. God said, no, 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 no. We need to reduce this army. Because if you go to fight and you win, then you'll think you did it. And I don't want there to be any question who's winning this battle. I don't want there to be any question. And so God reduced his army from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 guys. 450 to 1 were the odds. 450 to 1 were the odds. And so as Gideon goes into this battle, uh, he equips his guys. He sends them to band camp and they get a trumpet. Then he sends them to art class and they get a, a clay pot. And uh, they have a torch, and they go into battle, and they smash the pots, and they blow the trumpets, and the soldiers are so panicked, they think the enemy is coming, and they pull out their swords and start stabbing and killing anybody in sight, and over 100,000 of the enemy killed themselves that day in the battle. And that's where we left the story off last week. So Gideon took this huge step of faith, believing that God could use him to do something significant, um, and he did, and he did. 
So what happens after that point in time? Well, we're going to be in Gideon, we're going to be in Gideon not the book of Gideon. I said that last week. We're going to be in Judges chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Judges chapter 8. Um, and you can follow along in your Bibles or in the Bible in your seat, but we're going to go through chapter 8 and chapter 9. So I'm going to tell the story this morning instead of reading it, which is what I normally do because it's such a long story. Um, so I'm going to tell the story and tell you what had happened. So after they had the original battle, some of the armies started to flee. And some of the individuals that started to flee were the generals. And you know, you take out the general, the army's in disarray, right? The army does not know what to do. And so Gideon said, we've got to get the generals. And so the generals had actually started to flee down that black line down the middle of the Jordan River, and they had started to flee to the south. And so Gideon sent some messengers um, to the people of Ephraim. He said, go and um, send some troops down there, because this is where they're coming. I want you to intercept them, and I want you to take out the two kings, Oreb and Zeb. And so the Ephraimites, that's exactly what they did. They captured the, the two generals, um, and they killed them, and then Gideon came down. They said, here's the generals, but they weren't real happy with Gideon. They're like, Gideon, why didn't you invite us to the battle? They say, what do you mean? Well, Gideon had invited all the troops that were right in this area. That's where the battle took place. He didn't bother to invite anybody who was down in the southern part of the land. Um, but Gideon appeased them. Somehow he calmed them down, and they were okay. Uh, they were no longer resentful, as you'll see in this next verse, um, they were no longer resentful, and they went on their way. So Gideon had defeated the generals. He had wiped out the majority of the army. And you would almost assume that at this point, he would just ride off in the sunset as the hero. You know, to parades, you know, to a statue of himself somewhere, Gideon the hero. You kind of assume that's what God said. He said, you fight, you go. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to drive them out. They're all out. And you assume the story should be done right now. But the story does not end there. It doesn't end there. What then happens is Gideon then goes on to continue to chase the rest of the army. And as he chases the rest of the army, he only has 300 guys. These guys are worn out. And so he comes down to the city of Succoth and he asks them for some more troops. He said, you got anybody else that can come and fight? And the leaders thought about it and they thought, man, we just saw 15,000 guys go by. He's only got 300 men. The odds still are not in his favor. And if he loses, and they find out we helped him, they're coming after us. And so the men of Suc the leaders of Succoth said, you know, we're going to pass. We're not going to help. We're not going to help. And so look what Gideon says to him. He says, when I get these kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, those are the kings, I'm going to tear your flesh with thorns and briars. Now, that was a form of torture is what that was in that day. The, the thorns were not the little ones on the road bushes out here, you know, that are like a quarter of an inch. These were like two, three-inch briars, and this was a form of torture is what they would do to their enemies. So he's going to torture them. Now, remember, these are people in his own country. These are his own countrymen that he's talking about. So then he goes on the next town, and um, he asks for some help in the next town, the town of Penul. Goes to the town of Penul, asks for some help for some men, some food, they turn, him, they turn him down as well, and what does he say to them? He says, when I come back, I'm going to tear this place apart. That's what he says. I'm going to tear this place apart. So what does Gideon do? Well, then Gideon goes on and he follows the army. They're the purple line. They end up in Karkor. That's where the Midianites, that's where they were from. That's where they ended up. What Gideon did is he circled back around the other side, and when they had settled in, taken off their armor, and were not prepared for him, he went in and he wiped out the enemy. Um, 
He captured the kings, routed the whole enemy, wiped them out completely. They're all gone. They're all gone. And so Gideon then comes back through, and as he comes back through, he's making his way back. He's captured the kings. He's making his way back to Penuel and Succoth, and he finds a shepherd boy out in the field, and he says to him, he says, tell me who the leaders are in Succoth. And he says, these are all the people in charge, these people who runs our town. And so Gideon went back, and he found those individuals that led the town, and um, he punished them with desert thorns and briars, and then he went to the town of Penuel, and he pulled down the tower, and he killed the men. Now, you're kind of wondering if you were here and listened to a little bit of the story of Gideon, like, what's going on with Gideon? Because he was, first of all, he was this timid, uncertain, scared guy who didn't have the confidence to do anything. And then he was going to fight this battle. He was going to trust in God. And now, all of a sudden, he's exacting revenge and wiping people out just because they won't show up and help him. When life didn't go his way, what did Gideon do? Did he turn to God or did he take charge himself? God's never mentioned in this part of the story. It never shows up. Gideon just took care of it himself. And so you find a little bit of the backstory because he brings these two kings back and he says to these kings, he says, those were my brothers, the sons of my mother. Surely the Lord lives. If you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Oh, that's why he was hunting these guys down. Because somehow in the battle, his brothers got killed, lost some family members. And so what did Gideon do? He took revenge into his own hands. He didn't say, God will get revenge on them, God will take care of us. He took revenge into his own hands. And we're going to talk about revenge a little bit later as it shows up over and over and over again in this story. So Gideon goes back home, and uh, the kings mock him. They said... Um, he said, he tried, Gideon tried to get one of his sons to kill the kings. The king said, as the man, so his strength. They're mocking Gideon. Gideon goes ahead and kills the kings. And so Gideon arrives back home after killing the kings. And when he arrives back home, look at the Israelites said to him, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because God saved us from the hand of Midian. No, that's not what he said, is it? Because who saved us from the hand of Midian? Who saved them from the hand of Midian, did they, did they say? You you. Somehow they forgot that God had rescued them. They forgot that God had saved them. And even though they had been a part of that experience and seen God do this miraculous thing, Gideon took matters in his own hands. When things didn't work out, he took matters in his own hands. He said, I'm going to exact revenge. I'm going to exact justice. I'm going to make them pay. And the end result was the people wanted to raise him up as a king. And so what did Gideon do? Gideon said, no, 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 no. We should only worship God. We shouldn't have any other kings. And so, so Gideon then asked everybody who was there, he said, can everybody just give me one earring of gold? One earring of gold. And then he took the earrings and he formed an ephod. He's like, what is an ephod? Well, this is an ephod. It's like a, it's like a we would call it an apron is what we would call it, but it's a part of the priest attire. And you say, why would he make an ephod? Well, inside the pouch behind those colored stones there, there was, there was two rocks called an umen and a thumen. It was like the ancient Israelite magic eight ball. You know, they would reach in, and there was a black stone and a white stone. The white one meant yes, that God wants us to do us. The black one was no. 
And so they would, they would ask the priest sometimes, what does God want us to do? And the priest didn't have a clear sense of that. He would use that as a way to discern the will of God. So what Gideon did is he made a gold one of these. It says in the text it weighed 47 pounds. But look what happened to this. He put it in his hometown. All of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. They weren't worshiping the God who saved them. They were now worshiping this ephod that he had put in the city. That seems a little odd. Gideon says, don't make me king, but here I'm going to make something for you to, to worship. And the story goes on from there because not only did that happen, but it says that he had 70 wives of his own, 70 sons, for he had many, many wives. You know who took multiple wives? It's usually the king because nobody told the king no. You'd, you'd lose your life. And so the king would take any woman that he wanted. It says that he had 70 sons. He also had a concubine, a prostitute, who lived in Shechem, a town nearby who bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. You say, why would they tell us about one particular son? Well, guess what the word Abimelech means? Melech means king. Abba means father. My father is king, is what he named his son. So wait a minute, this guy says, don't make me king, I'm not going to be your king, God's supposed to be your king, but I'm going to make something to worship, I'm going to take any woman that I want, I'm going to have multiple wives, and I'm going to name my son who's born from this prostitute over, I'm going to name him, my father is king. And you're like, okay, who's he trying to fool? Who's he trying to fool? He says he's not king, he's certainly acting like the king, isn't he? Isn't he? Well... The story goes that Gideon soon passed away. He lived for 40 years, and is, the land of Israel was at rest, but he died. And what happened as soon as he died? Israel prostituted themselves to the Baals, which are the false gods. They set up Baal Barith as their god. And look at this verse. They didn't remember the, god who, the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And so God was very specific. He said, I'm going to reduce your military force so that you don't boast about you winning the battle. And yet, once they got beyond the battle, Gideon took things, he took this revenge matter into his own hands. And by taking it into his own hands, he didn't turn to God for help. He didn't leave this in God's hands. He took it in his own hands, wiped out his own countrymen, and eventually set himself up and propped himself up as the leader. He said he wasn't, but he acted just like someone who was. At this point, you would expect the story to end, and you would expect this cycle that we've been looking at every week to start up again. But something happened in this story. Because usually there's peace. The Midianites were gone. They were done. The judge dies. The people rebelled. God was angry and oppression. This would happen again. But this happened before the judge died. They were already worshiping other gods, and God was angry. And so now that the judge has died, you'd expect for God to send another deliverer. But that's not what happens. What happens is we get the story of this one son, Abimelech. And that's what all of chapter 9 is. About one son. One son. You know, sometimes when we sin, when we make a bad choice or bad decision, we realize, you know, I need to, I need to take the consequences for my choice or my decision. But we often forget that when we make a bad choice and bad decision, it doesn't just affect us. 
it affects a whole circle of people around us. When I make a bad choice or bad decision, when I sin, when I disobey what God says, it affects a whole circle of people around us. It's like waves when you throw a rock in the pond. And part of what we're going to see in this next chapter, in this story of Gideon, is the waves that spill out as a result of his choices and decisions. You know, the truth is, every person who's alive today is a sinner. It means I've chosen to do things that God doesn't want me to do. I've gone my own way, everybody. And the, the reality is, is every parent is a sinner. Every parent is a sinner. And if you've had parents, which we all have, they've sinned against you unintentionally, sadly, sometimes intentionally. And their choices and decisions have had an effect on you. And any time a parent makes a sinful choice or sinful decision, it has an effect, this ripple effect, on the people around them and the people that are close to them are their own kids. And sometimes they don't directly do something to them, but it still affects them. One of the things that affected me in the home that I grew up in was anger. I grew up in a very angry home. But I didn't become an angry person. Some people become very angry. They mirror that. I did not. But I made a rule in my mind as a young kid that the only way to have a relationship with people that matter to you is don't make them angry. And then you'll have a relationship with them. And so I stuffed my emotions. I stuffed my pain. I buried all of that in hopes that I have a meaningful relationship with the people that mattered the most to me. And I discovered over time that it didn't work. It didn't work. I never experienced that anger towards me. Isn't that remarkable? Never experienced that anger towards me. But that anger had an effect on me. And it wasn't until I unlocked the, the, the door to my emotions and recognized what was taking place that I saw that this ripple effect these sinful choices, how it affects everybody around them in, in very, very, very different ways. And so as we look at this story, we're going to see this ripple effect of Gideon's life, his choice, when life didn't work out and he took things in his own hands and he did it his way and he turned his back on God, the ripple effect in his whole family. So Gideon's died, he's off the scene, he's no longer in the picture and the, the story turns to his son, Ahimelech. And what Ahimelech does is he goes to his mother's family, because now that Gideon, remember how many sons Gideon had? He had 70 sons, right? And then, even though he wasn't ruling the land, he was acting like he was ruling. So there's 70 sons, and then there's the other son, Ahimelech. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be in charge? So Ahimelech, he goes to his mother's family and he says, listen, somebody has to run the place and it's not a good idea to have everybody run the place, so why don't we be the ones to run the place? And they're like, oh yeah, here, here, it sounds like a good idea. And so he hires a bunch of mercenaries, he goes back into his hometown and he kills all of his half-brothers. He just wipes them out. He went to his father's house in Orpha and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers. But one escaped, one guy named Jotham. And guess what he does in the very next verse? He asked the people to set him up and crown him king. And that's what they did. That's what they did. So this one guy, Jotham, he escapes. He gets away. And he says, we've got to do something about it. This is not good. Putting this guy in charge, this is going to come down on our heads. He had some wisdom and insight in that. So he goes to his 
to Abimelech's family, and he tells them this story. He tells them this story. He said the trees of the forest, they needed a ruler. And so the trees needed a ruler. And so what the trees did is they went to the olive tree, and they said, would you rule over us? You're a productive tree. You produce... But the olive tree says, no, I'm not going to give up my oil just to be in charge. Why would I do that? So then they go to another tree. They then go to the fig tree, and they say, would you be in charge? And the fig tree says, why would I give up my fruit just to be in charge? I I can be beneficial in other ways. Then he goes to the grapevine. He says, would you give up your wine to be in charge of all us? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then they go to the thorn bush. They said, would you be in charge? And the thorn bush says, well, if you put me in charge, if you want to anoint me as king, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, fire is going to come out of me and it's going to consume you. Now, I think most of us have an idea of what a fig tree or what a grapevine is, but most of us don't know what a thorn bush is. This is a thorn bush in the land of Israel. You can see how much shade that provides in the desert. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. And the thorns on that are those big, long thorns I was telling you about. And so I'm not sure what value this is, other than certain birds can put their eggs in and a nest in there, and no one will get it. No one will, no one will touch it. They're safe. That's what the thorn bush provides. And so Jotham's telling this story. And as he's telling this story, he's showing, trying to show the picture that you guys are setting yourself up for just, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be horrible. And he goes on in verse 16 of chapter 9 to tell us a little bit more of the backstory. He says, Have you acted honorably in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, to his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? See, there was a little vengeance stuff going on here. Because they were a little upset. Because Gideon had risked his life to rescue the people. And then they let this one guy take over wipe out a whole generation and let him be in charge. And he said, if you let him be in charge, this is going to come down on your head. Fire is going to come out of Abimelech and consume you. This is Jotham's prophecy to the people of Shechem. So what happens? What happens? Well, Abimelech gets wind of of Jotham trying to stir the people up. And so Jotham goes into hiding. He disappears. We never hear from him again. Never hear from him. And so Abimelech rules for three years. He's not a good guy. He takes advantage of everybody that's around him. And then after three years, look at verse 23. It says, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. So they acted treacherously against Abimelech. Now, if you were living in that day, if you were part of that community, you might have been saying like Gideon, God, where are you? God, where are you? Aren't you going to show up? Aren't you going to take care of us? We're under this oppression. There's no deliverance. Where are you, God? But God had not forgotten about them. God never forgets about us, even in times when it feels that way. He never abandons us, and he hadn't abandoned the people. So he stirred up conflict, and so another guy shows up on the scene. Um, Another guy named Gaal. Now you know where they got those names from Lord of the Rings. You know, they got them right out of the Bible, you know. So Gaal shows up on the scene. We don't know who Gaal is or where he's from, but he shows up on the scene. And he starts to, he starts to be a part of this rebellion against Abimelech. So how does he do that? Well, when Abimelech's troops were coming in from battle, they would wait in the hills, 
and they would steal and rob from them, just like a Robin Hood-style um, stealing that was taking place. And then they would take that and give it back to the people of Shechem, who were barely surviving at that point in time. Well, Abimelech gets word of this, sends troops out, starts finding, he actually sends his troops out to just kill people who are working in the fields. And then they set up a trap to trap the rest of the people. Gaal hears about the trap, he escapes narrowly, and the rebellion, the uprising is squelched. But in the midst of this uprising being squelched, some of the people run into the city and they hide inside a tower. And Abimelech says, they're going to pay. They're going to pay. And so he tells the people to go get branches, tells his troops to go get branches. They put branches around the base of this tower, and they go to light this thing on fire, just like Jotham predicted was going to happen. At that moment in time, as they're about to light this thing on fire, a woman in this tower, an unnamed woman, we don't know who she is, somehow she picks the upper millstone, it's a smaller part of the millstone that was used to grind wheat, and somehow she pushes this over the edge right when Abimelech was walking by and critically injures him. He says to one of his soldiers, he says, um, he says I want you to go ahead and kill me because I don't want it said that a woman killed me. And so he does. He runs a sword through him and kills him. And this tragic part of the story of Israel finally comes to an end. And the story closes with these words. It says, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all of their wickedness. And as you sit with this story and think about the story and think about everything that's taking place in the life of these people, the effect that Gideon's choices had on his family. I mean, his son, Abimelech, took power on himself, wiped out a whole generation, um, wiped out much of his people, simply just to put himself in a position of power and authority. You say, John, that's, that's a little extreme. I don't think my choices are going to have that kind of effect on my family. They'll have an effect. You can't control the effect that they'll have. They'll have an effect. But the point I want you to walk away with is that when Gideon, when he did not know what to do, when he couldn't figure out how to make life work, when he couldn't solve his problems, he chose himself. He chose himself. And his son Abimelech followed suit. He followed suit. As I sat and thought about Gideon, it can be real easy to look at a guy like this and say, he was a pretty bad guy. He had a good moment, should have ridden off in glory at that moment, but he was a pretty bad guy. He did some pretty awful things. But as I thought about Gideon, I thought, you know, unfortunately... I'm a lot like Gideon, and I think all of us are a lot like Gideon. You say, what do you mean, John? Well, there's lots of people who I talk to, and I say, I think, I think God wants you to do something with your life, and I, this is something I see in you, and they're, no, I don't know if that's true of me, John. I'm not sure I can do that. That maybe is for something. And no, I think God can do something with your life. And then you start to believe that he could, and maybe he will, and you, you take this step of faith, and with that step of faith comes excitement, and, and you see God work, and you see that, that prayer that Johnny talked about earlier, praying that you know, God would show up, and he does. 
And He uses you to make a difference in someone's life, in someone's faith journey. But in the midst of that comes this belief of losing sight that it was really God who did all of that. And I start to take a little bit of the credit myself, and I start to feel good about myself, and I drift away from the reality that it was God who did this. And it really wasn't me except me being available. You know, the crazy thing about Gideon is when God listed all the people who were people of great faith in God, Gideon made the list. In Hebrews 11, Gideon made the list. I think, how did he make the list? How did he make the list? But Gideon was a guy, just like all of us, who when God said to him, I want you to take this step, he was willing to take this step. Sadly, Gideon was also a guy, just like all of us, who when push came to shove, when revenge was on the table, when someone was taking advantage and disparaging his family, he took matters into his own hands. And he said, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to take care of it. And so the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, how often when life is not working, do I take it into my own hands? How often when life is not working, do I take it in my own hands? And where is life not working out for you right now? Where is life not working out for you right now? You know, when people come to me and they want to meet with me and want to talk to me about things that are going on in their lives or one of the other pastors here, um, you know, a lot of times you're coming for advice and, and you want direction. My experience continues to be that as I sit with people and listen to them, they often know exactly what God wants them to do. But it's a struggle to do it. It's a struggle to do it. We often want to take matters in our own hands. We often want to make someone else pay the thing because of the things that have happened to us. And God says, are you willing to take things out of your hands and let me have them? Gideon was not. Gideon was not. There was a moment in time in his life when he said, I'm going to take my hands off. I'm going to trust God that he's going to help me defeat this army. It's 450 to 1 odds. There's no way I should be able to defeat this. And he saw God do it. But as soon as that happened, he took that victory and put it in his backpack and took charge, making life work on his own. And some of you are sitting there listening to me talk this morning. You're saying, but John, if I don't make life work, it's not going to get done. And I would suggest to you, maybe it doesn't need to get done. Maybe it doesn't need to get done. I wonder what our lives would look like if we had this capacity, if you want to know and follow God, to wait and be patient for Him to show up. To wait and be patient for Him to show up. How would that change your life? How would that change my life? I'll be the first to admit that there was a season in my life when I was younger, when I wanted to take charge, I wanted to make things happen, I wanted to move things forward and get things done. But I'm moving into the season of my life and I'm discovering the less I do that, the more God does. How's that work? I don't know how it works. But it happens. 
The more I take my hands off, the less I try to control, the more I lean into Him and listen to Him and am patient with Him, the more He does. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. That's what I want. John the Baptist said, less of me and more of you. He said, I must decrease. God has to increase. What's that look like? How do I do that in my life every single day? It starts by asking this question, where's life not working out right now? Where am I trying to make it work and it is just not working? It's just not working with my parents. It's just not working with my spouse. It's just not working with my teens. It's just not working with my aging parents. It's just not working with my adult kids. It's just not working with my boss. Some of you maybe have a long list. Where's life not working right now? But maybe the most important question is not where is it not working, but who's going to run the show where it's not working? You or God? You or God? Gideon, for a moment in time, turned things over to God. And what did God do? He did something that anybody that knows the story of Gideon remembers that part of the story. The part of the story where Gideon took over and took charge, nobody remembers it. Nobody remembers it. really boils down to this question. Will you surrender your life to God and let Him take charge? Will you surrender your life to God and let Him take charge? And not just this moment in time, not just this day, but tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that. Because I guarantee you, even if you say, God, I want that today, within the next few hours, few days, there's going to be a tug of war where you're going to try to take charge again. And so I don't know what the story or the narrative of your life has been up to this point in time. I don't know what it's been. I don't know what it's looked like. But God doesn't care about the past. God only cares about where you are right now. And he offers you a relationship with him, the God of the heavens. Who's, and he says, if you will take your hands off and open your hands up instead of closing your fists and trying to hold tightly, and trust me that I will lead you and I will guide you if you will follow. You bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. God, I thank you for the story of Gideon. Um, it's a story that Wow, there's these cool highlights of Gideon stepping up and trusting you and, and you doing this amazing thing in his life with helping him defeat the enemy. My God, there's plenty of lowlights as well. And unfortunately, Father, that seems to mirror many of our stories where we have these moments, these bursts, but then the slide down is dark and ugly. And God, I pray this morning that you would challenge and call our hearts to be willing to follow after you. 
no matter what it is you're inviting us to do. That we patiently wait for you um, and not run ahead and take charge ourselves when it's just not working out. To leave revenge, getting even, people doing the right thing, leave all that in your hands, God. And watch you do what we could never do. God, this is incredibly difficult. We can't do this on our own. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.